Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. Well, good morning once again. We are in our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Matthew here. If you would, please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, we got Bibles in the back there by the audio-video booth. Yeah, that's, that's our gift to you. We want to make sure that you have the Word of God in your hands. And as you turn there to Matthew chapter 4, let me do a review from the last... Really, the the past three weeks, we've been studying the temptations of Jesus, and we learned that in English, that word temptation, it means to trick. It means to trick to do evil. However, over the last couple of weeks, we, we also learned that that Greek word for temptation is a very, very different understanding, a very different meaning. Uh, the word itself is, is parosmos. Parosmos has a, a much more... A different definition than our English definition. It means to test or to tempt. It can go either way. To prove, to prove worthy, or to prove unworthy. And one of the key points from last week, we, we said this, parosmos is a neutral word. It can be used as a testing for good or a temptation for evil. So from God's viewpoint, parosmos is always a test for his children. It's a test to build spiritual muscle. It's to grow us up into the people that God designed us to be. But from Satan's perspective, parosmos is always a temptation. Same word, but it's used for wickedness. So the issue with parosmos, either being tested or being tempted, is that you really can't see the difference until you experience the outcome. So if I pass, well, that's a test. And it proves that I'm growing in my faith. If I fail, it's a temptation in which I was enticed by my, my own desires and I chose to sin in James 1.14. And because of that, we're learning that these three temptations of Jesus, they're vital lessons for us, for our own lives. Um, Jesus, what he does here, he, he gives us a plan to follow when we're tempted. And as we know, Jesus is victorious over all of temptations. Jesus not only overcame all these temptations, but he also triumphed over temptation at the highest level of the temptation every single time. And that's why the the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every single way as we are, and yet he's without sin. Who's the high priest? It's Jesus. Yeah. And what we're learning from this narrative is that Jesus chose these three specific temptations because they represent every other type of temptation. These three temptations point to the very root of everything that you and I will experience. So Jesus' first temptation on the surface, it appeared to, to basically deal, he's just going to turn stones into bread. 
However, we learn that bread was, was simply the mechanism for Jesus to sin. If Jesus were to do that, he would be taking control out of the Father's hand and into his own. The Apostle John calls this the lust or the desires or the cravings of the flesh. So how often do we grab control out of the Father's hands? Because we fear we're not going to have any bread. We fear that we're not going to make, make the mortgage for tomorrow. The bills won't get paid. Jesus' second temptation, it was really one of those I, dub, I, I double dog daria type of temptations. Satan tempted Jesus to jump off the, the top of the temple so that angels would, would come and save him. We talked about the hidden sin there, and this temptation is to steal God's glory, is to take it for ourselves. How often are we tempted to brag on ourselves? How often do we throw in just a subtle comment to let everybody know how smart we are in Bible study? And when we do that, we, we essentially, we're stealing glory from God by what he's accomplishing through us. So that sets us up for Jesus' third temptation today. Today's temptation is something that we have all struggled with at one time or another, and that temptation is to have it all. All the money and all the power that this world offers. So how do we deal with and how do we overcome this temptation? Let's find out. If you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's Word. I'm going to start in chapter 3, verse 16, to give us the full picture of the narrative here. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water, and the heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And then the tempter approached him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written that man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, well, throw yourself down for it is written. He will give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus told him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all of these things if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus told him, go away, Satan. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And then the devil left him and angels came and began to serve him. And this is the word of the Lord for us here at River Bible Church this morning. Thank you. You guys have a seat. Let's take a deeper look here at verse 8. 
Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. Well, last Sunday, we addressed whether or not Satan physically and literally took Jesus from the desert to the temple in verse 5. So let me, uh, let me show this to you again. Verse 5 says, then the devil took him to the holy city. So did Jesus and Satan, did they really walk the 10 to 40 miles from the desert to, to Jerusalem? Or did they see some type of vision? And we discussed the, the pros and the cons of, of both of those options. Now, as I was thinking through this, here's another possibility and really another question that we didn't discuss last week. Were Jesus and Satan, were they supernaturally transported somehow? Remember Philip, after he was baptized, or he baptized the Ethiopian official? Scripture says they were carried away, right, in Acts chapter 8. They were carried away by the Holy Spirit. Well, I, I think even with that option, we concluded, and we should still conclude, that Jesus and Satan did indeed walk, because that verb there took... It's, it's active and present. It, it means to take or guide somewhere. And I bring that up because we have the same question here in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. It's the same verb. So in, in this context, it appears that once again, Jesus and Satan, they walked to a mountain and they hiked it. Now, we're not told what specific mountain. There are two specific po uh, possibilities, though. We've got Mount Nebo. It's about 4,000 feet above sea level, and it's about a two-day walk from Jerusalem. Mount Nebo, it's, it's located near the city of Jericho. This is the same mountain where Moses viewed the promised land. And the second possibility is Mount Hermon. The peak of Mount Hermon is the highest point in Israel, 9,200 feet above sea level. So that's about a six-day walk from the temple. So when you consider all this walking that Jesus and Satan may have done, it still fits within the 40 days and the 40 nights of Jesus fasting and being tempted. So looking at verse 8 again, uh, verse 8, again, the, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. Luke's gospel provides a detail not found here in, in Matthew. He says in Luke chapter 4, verse 5, so he took him up, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Here's where it gets interesting. No matter how high that mountain was, there had to be some type of additional supernatural vision because it's humanly impossible to, to see all of the kingdoms from one place. Now keep in mind, Jesus is being tested as the son of man. He laid aside his divinity emphasizing his humanity here. So he could only see as far as you and me. Secondly, the earth is, is a globe, it's not flat. And then lastly, Luke confirms it here. Some, some type of supernatural vision happened. Um, so really it appears that, that Satan not only physically took Jesus to one of these mountains, really he's pulling out all the stops with some type of demonic vision. So what did Jesus see? Well, we don't know for sure. There's no reason to be dogmatic here, but if we want to remain faithful to correct biblical hermeneutics, where would we learn about the, a nation's wealth and glory and power? Does a certain Old Testament king come to mind? King Solomon, right? 
All his wealth, all of his power, all of his glory recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 9. And I do want to highlight some of these verses from, from this chapter just to give us some context of what's going on. I want you to notice here the terminology that Scripture uses. Scripture says, never before. Nothing like it. It surpassed everything. So 2 Chronicles 9.9. Then she, so that's the queen of Sheba, gave the king four and a half tons of gold, a great quantity of spices and precious stones. There were never, there were never such spices as those the queen of Sheba gave to the king Solomon. So four and a half tons of gold, a ton is 2,000 pounds, well over $20 million today. Verse 10, in addition, Hiram's servants and Solomon's servants who brought gold from Ophir also brought algum wood and precious stones. So we've got more gold. Ophir is a, is a land renowned for its fine gold. Um, verse 11, the king made algum wood into walkways for the Lord's temple, for the king's palace into lyres and harps for the singers. And never before had anything like them had been seen in the land of Judah. King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba her every desire, whatever she asked for, and far more than she had, had brought the king. So King Solomon gave her more than, than she gave him, more than $20, $20 million in gifts back to her. Verse 13, the weight of gold that came to Solomon annually was 25 tons. Wow. Today's currency, well over $100 million. And then look at this, verse 14, that's besides what was brought by the merchants and all the traders. All the Arabian kings and the governors of the land, they also brought more gold and more silver to Solomon. Verse 19, 12 lions were standing there on six steps, one at each end. Nothing like it had ever been made in any other kingdom. All of King Solomon's drinking cups were gold. All the utensils, they were pure gold. There was no silver since it was considered as nothing in Solomon's time. And then verse 22, King Solomon surpassed all the kings of the world, all the riches and all the wisdom. So on top of, of Jesus seeing the great empires of, of Rome and Egypt and Greece, is it possible that Jesus saw the wealth and the power and the glory of Israel in its heyday? So all the world's wealth, it's, it's offered to Jesus at this moment, but there's one stipulation. Just one simple genuflection to the father of lies. That's all it takes. Notice that Satan didn't show Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their sin. Satan focuses on worldly splendor and magnificence and glory and it's after this supernatural vision, Satan says this. He says, Jesus, I'm going to give you all of these things if you fall down and worship me. Now, wait a second. We've got we to pause right there because does Satan really own all the kingdoms of the world? For Satan to give these things to Jesus, it means he, he has to own them first. Scripture has a lot to say about this. Let's start with Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 4, looking at verse 5 again. Satan took Jesus up, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, 
I will give you their splendor and, and this authority because it has been given over to me, and I can give it to anybody that I want. Now, it's never a good idea to take the devil's word for it. We learned that last week. And Scripture interprets more Scripture. So let's look and see what the epistles have to say. Ephesians 2.2 the Apostle Paul writes, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, who is the commander of the powers in the unseen world. 1 John 5.19, we know that we are children of God and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. So we know that, that Satan is the commander of the unseen world. He's, he has the control. But do these passages really prove that Satan has the authority to give all of these things to Jesus? Scripture confirms that, that Satan is, he, he's, he's the one that's in charge of the unseen world. But do these passages really prove that the devil is the, the ultimate legal owner of all of this wealth? In other words, does Satan have control over creation? Does Satan truly have the right to give material things away as he pleases? Well, let's keep digging. Scripture interprets more scripture. Psalm 2, it's called the coronation psalm. This is an amazing text where God the Father crowns Jesus as the king of kings. Psalm 2-7. He said to me, so that's the Father saying to Jesus, You are my son, and today I have become your father Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. So let me ask you, does, does Satan truly have the power to give all of this to Jesus? Let's not forget that Satan is a liar. Jesus tells us that in John 8, 44. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he's a liar and the father of lies. So the truth is that the Father has already promised Jesus, the nations, his inheritance. But see what Satan is doing? Satan is trying to write a check that his mouth won't ca cash. When Satan says that all this has been handed over to me, well, that's partially true. He is, the, he is legitimately the commander of the world's systems, the world's morality, but it's not true of the created world. The nations and its physical gold, has that been handed over to Satan? Do you see how subtle Satan is here with these temptations? Every single one of them. Key point number one for today. Satan controls, he doesn't own the world's kingdom. Satan controls, not owns the world's kingdoms. So here's a question that we've asked with the first two temptations, and we need to ask it here as well. What's the real temptation for Jesus? It's, it's as if Satan is trying to say to Jesus, you know, Jesus, why should you have to wait for what's legally yours? Why do you submit as a servant when you can reign as a king right now? Jesus, I'm only offering you what the Father has already promised you guys see the temptation? Jesus is tempted to step outside the Father's will and bypass suffering once again. We said it last week. We'll repeat it again here. 
Satan is offering Jesus a crown without the cross. The timing for Jesus' rule and reign is premature here. That's part of the temptation. God the Father says that Jesus must first suffer before he reigns. Now, we, we, we know that Jesus will reign as a king. Revelation eleven fifteen says this, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So the kingdom of the world, the cosmos, that, that's the same word, that the world and its systems, its morality. Jesus will reign over all of that. But the path in which Jesus will reign the world, it has to come through suffering. Satan seems to offer what the Father offers, but see, his price is much, much cheaper. At least initially, it's just the, it's just the classic bait and switch is all this is. So back to verse 9, Satan says, I will give you all of these things if you will fall down and worship me. Notice here what Satan didn't say in verse 9. He didn't say, if you're the son of God. Remember, he said that in the previous two temptations. Why not? Eh. It's like the devil acknowledges the fact that Jesus is the son of God. Secondly, notice that Satan didn't misquote Scripture as Jesus to Jesus as he did previously. So Satan is changing his demonic tactics here. And when you start peeling all of these layers back, it's, it's not worship that Satan only wants. And Jesus sees this. And in verse 10, Jesus says, Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Jesus knows that whatever we worship, we will serve. Now, there are several things to note here in verse 10. First, Jesus finally gives Satan a command. Jesus had enough. After 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, after overcoming who knows how many temptations, after possibly walking miles and miles and miles, Jesus is done, and he says, just go away. And then secondly, notice how Jesus responds to the temptation. He responds the same way that uh, allowed him to overcome the previous two. He says, it is written. So Jesus is three for three here, overcoming temptations by quoting scripture. And in this particular temptation, Jesus replied, paraphrasing Deuteronomy chapter 6. And this is important. Why would Jesus choose this verse to overcome this temptation? Why would he do that? Let's take a look. Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would give you a land with large and beautiful cities that you did not build, houses full of every good thing that you did not fill them with, cisterns that you did not dig, vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. And when you eat and you're satisfied, be careful, be careful. Don't forget the Lord <laughs> who brought you out of the land, out of the place of slavery. And then Jesus says this in verse 13, or excuse me, Deuteronomy 6.13. This is the, this is the uh, scripture passage Jesus quotes. Fear the Lord your God and worship him. 
So by not worshiping Satan, Jesus avoids repeating the sin of Israel when, when it worshiped the golden calf. Jesus avoids all the idolatry, all the adultery throughout the, the entire Old Testament. And with Jesus quoting scripture here once again, he overcame the temptation to sin. Now, have you guys noticed the theme that each temptation offers Jesus? The theme here is that there is always an easier way than God's way. For Jesus, the temptation was to, buy, to bypass the cross every single time. If Jesus turned stones into bread, oh my goodness, he could easily win people over. Uh, as Israel's prime minister of social security, if Jesus jumped off the temple, he, he could entertain the nation with signs and wonders. And lastly, Satan even offers Jesus the world's glory. Everything a human being could ever want brings us to key point number two. As Jesus says no to Satan, he says yes to suffering. As Jesus says no to Satan, he says yes to suffering. Verse 11, the devil left him. Angels came and began to serve him. Two things to notice here in verse 11. Notice how, number one, look who has the real power throughout this narrative. When Jesus tells Satan to scat, he does. And then secondly, notice how something supernatural happens to benefit Jesus on a human level for the first time. God the Father sent angels to help Jesus. These angels, they obviously have food. Jesus' test in the wilderness, it concludes with really incredible irony here, because as soon as Satan leaves, the angels appeared and they ministered to him. Why? Because the fast was over. Jesus was victorious. The very help that Jesus rejected is now available because of his obedience. I think it's really important to understand that Jesus only had to wait a short amount of time to overcome this temptation. So Jesus has passed the parasmos, didn't he? He recovers from his fast, and next week we're going to see him formally begin his public ministry in Matthew's gospel. Now, I'd like to finish today's sermon on really one specific aspect of temptation, and that is resistance. Somebody once said, I can resist anything but temptation. Maybe the, Lord, maybe the Lord's prayer should say, lead me not into temptation because I can find it myself. <laughs> you know, when talking about temptation and, and resistance to it, there's a familiar verse here that comes to mind, and that's James 4, 7. The Apostle James writes, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So my question is, how do we resist as Christians, we tend to think that resistance is where the real battle with temptation is won or lost. So when we hear that, that word resist, what do we think of? Many of us think, right, I'm going to buckle down. I'm going to stand firm. I'm going to be immovable. Others of us may want to spiritualize this verse. Either way, 
we think that the godlier we are, the better we're going to be at temptation. But that was before we met a tardigrade a couple weeks ago. Remember that? I will tell you, I didn't realize that you get the coolest gifts when you're a pastor. (laughs) A couple weeks ago, we talked about the tardigrade, and someone got me a tardigrade. (laughs) If you want to know what this thing is, the, the sermon's on the website. See, we think that resistance is the only point of victory or defeat. We believe that our decision based right here at the height of our battle against sin will be controlled by our godliness. And dear friends, both options are a lie. Let me point you back to verse 1 that started this series on temptations over the past month. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. See, after a high point in ministry, Jesus, he was just baptized. God the Father, the Holy Spirit was there. He's commissioned into ministry. And immediately after that, Jesus was led somewhere he did not want to go. And we discussed what Jesus did with his time. He fasted. He prayed. So in other words, Jesus was aware of the situation around him. And he prepared for it. He had some idea what was getting ready to come. So key point number three for this morning. Jesus showed us how to be aware of our surroundings. Jesus showed us how to be aware of our surroundings. And if we become aware of what's going on around us, and if we can be honest about our sin, then we can prepare ourselves like Jesus did for his temptations. Uh, Key point number four, temptations that have been anticipated and prayed against have little power. Temptations that have been anticipated and prayed against, they have little power over us. Guys, we don't have to do what we've always done. And this key point of awareness will help you stop doing those things that you don't want to do anymore. Now, here's the downside to being unaware. It it leads to a lifestyle of of white-knuckling our temptations. Meaning, I'm, I'm unaware of the situation, and then bam, temptation comes, and, and then I just kind of grit my teeth, I bear down, I'm immovable, and, and I get over the temptation by sheer grit. Now, I can be victorious over this method, using this method for a short period of time, but those kind of, uh, of victories, they lead to a bigger problem. So let me ask you, what happens when you finally do cave in to the temptation? What happens when you finally overeat? What what happens when you explode with anger? Or maybe you have the drink, or you look at pornography, or you pop the pill, or you spend the money, or you, you just fill in the blank. What happens? What happens is that the pleasure of your sin, it escalates. It now becomes more pleasurable. Now, sin is pleasurable. We all know this. We don't need a scripture verse to confirm it. We have one. Hebrews 11.25. 
But have you ever considered that the, the reason that we sin is because we get something out of it? If we didn't get something out of sin, we wouldn't do it. There's a pleasure in our sin. Key point number five, human resistance only intensifies the pleasure of sin. Human resistance, this idea of white-knuckling this, sheer grit, I'm going to get through this apart from the grace of God, it only intensifies the pleasure of sin. And when I finally do give in, the pleasure of that sin is now heightened. So in other words, resistance, this idea of being immovable and standing firm, is now working against you. It keeps you in the spiral of this sin. So this incorrect definition of resistance is now in opposition to the very thing that you're trying to achieve, which is holiness and godliness. But why is it in opposition? Because you've learned how to increase the pleasure of your sin, which is the very thing that you can't control. So how do we break it? How do we break the spiral of sin? Well, dear friends, I'll just point you back to Jesus. He shows us the pattern. Number one, we submit to God. Number two, we pray to God. And number three, we learn the word of God. I mean, that's really a summary of, of everything that we've learned over the past, the past month. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, wait a second. I'm doing that. I'm doing all those things, Dustin. I've got, I'm submitting to God. I'm praying to God. And, and I'm, I'm learning the word of God. I'm not perfect in it, but I really am doing it. And yet, there's still something in my life that I can't shake. There's something dark that every time I'm tempted, I dive right into it. And that darkness, you know, my best friend doesn't even know. Maybe my spouse doesn't even know. But there's something in my life that I can't get rid of. If that's the case, let me ask you this. When's the last time that you confessed that particular sin? As sin. It's not, oops, I did it again. It's, it's sin. When's the last time you confessed it as sin? See, when we have this kind of struggle in our lives, it's not that we don't love God. It's that we forget about God at that moment until afterward, and then we're just plagued with guilt. Scripture talks a lot about darkness versus light and the freedom that comes from bringing these things from darkness into light. So in our context today, that's called confession. I want to share two more verses with you. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9, to me, is like the vertical portion of the cross. I'm going to confess my sin to God, and he is going to forgive me. And I did that for years. Years, years, years. And then, and then I came across James 5.16. The Apostle James says, confess your sins to one another and to pray for one another so that you may be healed. Guys, I will, I'll share with you this verse, James 5.16, it changed my life. And it changed my view on temptation and sin altogether. 
Many of you know I was an addict for 20 years of my life. And when the Lord saved me, I I read this verse and I thought, well, wait a second. I don't want to confess my sins to another man. Mm -mm. See, I thought my sins were so awful. I thought my sins were so wretched that no one would understand what was going through my brain. But if 1 John 1, 9 is the vertical portion of the cross and and, and you're confessing sin to God and James 5, 16 is the horizontal by confessing sin to a trusted friend, not just anybody, a trusted friend, look at the promise that God gives us when we do this. James 5, 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Why do I want to do that? Look at the rest of the verse. So that you may be healed. See, confession of our sin, it leads to wholeness, it leads to healing, and there's an awareness. Uh, Awareness is the tool that will lead us to confession. And dear friends, when you confess your sins to God, when you confess your sins to a trusted friend, you do take one step closer to overcoming your temptations. Amen? Amen? If you would, please stand for the the benediction for this morning. Today's benediction comes from Psalm 121, verses 7 and 8. May the Lord protect you from all harm. He will protect your life. He will, guys. The Lord will protect your coming and your going now and forever. Amen and amen. Dear friends, we have prayer through the foyer to the right. We have fellowship to our left. May God bless you this week. Thank you.